So I remember horrific sermons from an early age. There was this one guest preacher and he described all these horrible things about hell. I had never heard such a graphic sermon until then just about how like demons are torturing you, ripping your limbs apart, all these different horrible things. And here I am, this child, believing all the adults around me who are telling me that this is very real and that if I don't accept this message, that's going to happen when I die. They would always say, if you don't accept this message tonight, you might get in a car wreck on the way home and you might die. And you might burn in hell for eternity and be tormented forever. So, so much fear. Welcome back to Prey vs. Predator. We are very excited to have you with us, and we are very excited to have a special guest, Andrew Pledger. Uh, Andrew, I'm going to let you speak and tell our audience about you, um, but just know that we are excited to have you as a guest today. Tell us a little bit about you and... Just introduce yourself to our audience before we begin yeah, with your story. Yeah, first, thank you all so much for having me. I'm so excited uh, for this opportunity. But yeah, for people who aren't familiar, my name is Andrew Pledger. And I was raised in a Christian cult in the independent um, fundamental Baptist movement. And I was homeschooled K through 12 for the purpose of indoctrination into the system of control. Yeah, so all the way K through 12. So for, for me, it was 2005 to 2018, I was homeschooled. And throughout all of that time, I was subjected to, you know, as I've learned in therapy, a lot of emotional, psychological, psychological, spiritual, and even at times, physical abuse. And it was all justified in the name of religion, of belief. And during that upbringing, I, in my later teen years, figured or found out that I was gay, which was really terrible in that environment. It was one of the worst things that you could be. There was a lot of violent and extremist rhetoric around it. And for people who are not familiar with the independent fundamental Baptist movement, which I'll refer to now as IFB, because it's a lot easier to say. Yeah, yeah. I have heard of IFB, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. So is it like a cousin of Southern Baptist? Yeah, so IFB it, it really is a strange thing because it's technically not a denomination. Hmm. And the reason the IFB movement was started, it was a reaction to modernism and liberal theology that was happening in more mainstream Baptist churches. Of course. And a lot of more fringe members in these denominations were like, okay, well, we don't like the teachings or the information that's happening or that people are being exposed to in these Baptist denominations. So we're going to create our own offshoot of churches where we can we don't have any governing body dictating our theology so, that, so that's what really makes them stand apart is the independent part means there's no governing board over these churches all these churches can operate however they want um, but yeah so what they all have in common is they all operate independently even though they'll still collaborate with each other in different ways so like there's no official body over them holding them accountable which i think makes this movement i think so dangerous 
Um, and what really they're known for is their stance that the KJV or the King James version of the Bible is the only legitimate word of God. All other versions of the Bible are false. And they're really known just for their really um, extreme rhetoric and really like some people would call it hard preaching. Um, I, I would say like they have like an authoritarian preaching style and a lot of these preachers like have authoritarian tendencies. These are the kinds of pastors these churches attract. And it's really based on a lot of fear, shame, and guilt, the teachings in him. Is it like hell, hell and brimstone and all that sort of? Yes, yes, fire and brimstone. brimstone. Um, End times, they loved to emphasize the end times and a lot of Christian nationalism mixed Mm -hmm. into all of that too. I remember hearing sermons growing up that, you know, fundamentalist Christians should take over the government. And if they did, the country would be in a much better place. That's what they believed. Because mm-hmm. they literally they actually thought like they had the right interpretation mm-hmm. and they had the absolute truth and everyone else was wrong. Can I ask and, you, can I ask you quick, uh, sorry to interrupt your beautiful story. Well, it's not oh, no so worries. beautiful. Uh, it will, it's redemptive in the end. Um, the IFB, so they have no, they're independent but they are together as a bunch of independent. Like it's confusing to my brain how you can be independent. So there must be a head of the IFB or is there not? There's technically not an official head of the IFB because that was the whole point of doing it is they did not want anyone over them telling them what to do. Um, And there are definitely leaders in the movement that people look to for direction to follow. And one of those leaders was actually Jack Hiles. Oh, and I know that name. my parents, they were, they went, to, they went to his college, which was called Hiles Anderson. Mm. It, it was attached to the largest IF, IFB church in America called First Baptist of Hammond. And he just was known he could just bring in thousands of people to church. He was known just for just his charisma, mm-hmm. the way he could just bring people in. And he was also had very authoritarian tendencies. And I think the church, like it reached a membership of a hundred thousand people at one point. Um, wow. So he just built this massive ministry and a, a thing with the IFB and how they grow. Um, I don't, not sure if it's, as common anymore but like the church that i grew up in and i knew a lot of churches the ifb is known for having bus ministries so they'll bus people in from around the city or in the county and bring them to the church and i remember the church i grew up in we had around i think at one point 50 buses and we would bring in just hundreds of kids every Mm. week and present them this salvation message for like an hour and then send them on their way. Yeah. But yeah, with Jack Hiles, he had his church. He was able to have 137 buses, I wow. think. So wow. he, had a, he had a massive bus ministry. And he created this college, Hiles Anderson, that was attached to this church. And that's where my parents met. My mm-hmm. dad was studying to be a pastor. My mom was studying to be a Christian school teacher. 
Mm. And the thing with these colleges, they're just like pumping out all these pastors and really like uh, missionaries to go plant all these different IFB churches in America, across the world. Um, It was all about spreading it as far as they could. And I think a lot of people don't realize like, you know, they're just it's not it's most likely there's an ifb church around the corner from where you live like it's very likely yeah so where i grew up um i like i know that jack hiles name i mean i never went to any of his services but i have friends that went to churches where he would come and Mm -hmm. he was super revered yeah did he write Mm -hmm. books too i think i might have read something years ago Say that again he wrote books I'm sure he did. Yeah, I have not okay. looked any of them up. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, honestly. I'm just curious. Um, okay, so we've got the IFB, a little history. So your parents met at the college. So what happens from there? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, they met at the college and I think they ended up getting married. I think it was in um, 1990. And, you know, my dad was going to be a pastor, my mom, a Christian school teacher. And, you know, my dad, he was not in the ministry for that long. And, you know, by the time I was born, he was not in the ministry at all. And one of the struggles my parents had was it took them, I think, six to seven years to actually have children. Like they were not sure if they were going to be able to have children. And that's such a big deal in fundamentalism. Like you're told to be fruitful and multiply the earth and have children but here they were struggling and you know in the environment you know i think you're basically taught that god opens the womb or closes the womb so it's kind of like there's a shame element of like god's involved in that and if you can't have children there's just an unbearable amount of shame on the parents struggling with that and so i think you know they considered adoption and they struggled to have children and until eventually they did so i'm the middle of three boys and you know they were so grateful and to have children so i think let's see so my oldest brother he was born in 1997 i think yeah 1997 and you know i was born in 2000 and then my younger brother was born in 2003 and you know my mom she was a christian school teacher but after being in that for so long she realized it was not for her and she just didn't want to raise or really put her children in the christian school system and of course not the public school system so she decided she wanted to homeschool all of her children and so you know by the time we were at that age to be homeschooled she started homeschooling and you know and when when it, in regards to my dad with the ministry, I've never heard him ever talk about it once. What I've heard is only from my mother and the stories that they have. And, you know, they they did have some pretty bad experiences in the ministry. She told me a story of how they ran a, a bus for a church, a bus ministry, and um, they were told that they would be, they would I mean, they were volunteers, so they were basically told they would be fired if they couldn't get more, get the numbers up on the bus ministry. So here they are spending so much time serving this church. I mean, told if you can't get in this amount, 
then you're gone. Like you're out. Like, no, we don't want you doing that anymore. And that's the thing, what I noticed the church I grew up in, they were so focused on numbers. How many people could we get in? But it didn't, they didn't seem to really care about those actual people themselves. I don't think it was all about the looks and it made them feel good because they thought they were giving them salvation. Um, yeah. So I, I was homeschooled K through 12 and my parents mainly used the Abeka curriculum, oh, yeah. which it was recently covered on John Oliver. Yeah, yeah we saw it. Um, <laughs> he covered it <laughs> a little bit at least. I did a bit of um, Abeka too. I was raised in I was ACE. I and then we oh. went to ACE after that. So I'm familiar. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So it it is an IFB produced curriculum because it's produced by Pensacola oh. Christian oh, College, which is an IFB college. And my oh, older brother he ended up attending that school. Okay. Um, but yeah, so kind of like for the like the church that I grew up in. So, you know, my life was being homeschooled. Then it was attending this church cult that I was in. And then I was involved in a, a local like homeschool group and then a 4-H club, but it involved still a lot of Christians. And there wasn't the opportunity to really get outside perspectives. Um, but some of my earliest memories of growing up in the IFB, I remember getting saved at eight years old. And in that environment, getting saved is just a term that means you accept their gospel message. And their message was, you know, admit you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died on the cross and confess your sins. And the way they would get people to do this was really fear. So I remember horrific sermons from an early age. And I remember there was this one guest preacher and he described all these horrible things about hell, about just, I had never heard such a graphic, sermon until then just about how like demons are torturing you ripping your limbs apart all these different horrible things and here i am this child believing all the adults around me who are telling me that this is very real and that if i don't accept this message that's going to happen when i die and in addition to that you know they would always say you know you could if you don't accept this message, you know, tonight you might get in a car wreck on uh, the way home and you might yeah, die. Yeah. And you might burn in hell for eternity and be tormented mm -hmm. forever. Or the other thing was God, you know, Jesus, his second coming could happen tonight. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week. Yeah. So there's always that too. Jesus could always be coming back. So, so much fear I, I that think, was used. I think there's a term for that, like that revel at like the end of times fear. Like like rapture anxiety? Yeah, rapture. Or? I had it too as a child. I would call Same. my parents' name and if I didn't hear it, I thought they were, were up in, in yeah. taken up mm -hmm. in the clouds. Um, I wish yes. we'd all been ready. Yeah. And <laughs> then there, that was, song. <laughs> there was something that you mentioned before that about fear and um I was thinking about, oh, the idea of um, even in the Duggar docu documentary at Shiny Happy People, Jill Duggar mentions like this idea, if I don't obey my parents, something bad will happen. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a magical yes. thinking idea that, mm -hmm. and it sounds a little like what that's indoctrination of what you experienced as yes. well. Exactly. And we, we had the whole authority thing also. I mean, they never explicitly 
had the Bill Gothard umbrella of authority, but it had the same teachings. You know, we were taught that God ordained these, uh, you know, conveniently put these authority figures in all of our lives and that, you know, they were representative of God. So, of course, you know, I was taught that God placed my parents in my life to be over me and they're you know they represented that authority and so you know from a young age i remember being taught basically that you know you would be harmed if you did not obey your parents and i remember my parents telling me growing up um adults are always right even when they're wrong. So mm. oh. they were just exempt from any accountability. So because they had that position of power and control, they were right. Like it didn't matter. I was a, they were the powerful. I was a powerless in that situation. And, you know, and they justified it through God. Like they, I think they really actually um, believe that. And, you know, and, you know, I was taught, my parents told me that, you know, if I obeyed them, that I would live a long life. And if I didn't obey them, then I would not live a very long life. And I can't remember what verse they, or how they back that up. I feel like there's something. Yeah, it's in the Old Testament. In yeah. Yeah. Is there really yeah, a yeah. verse? Yeah. I'll, I'll find it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so again, like there was also like that authority is a big part of fundamentalism. And like, again, like, with the Duggars, like, you know, that fear of stepping out from under that umbrella of protection. And that was something I was terrified of um, my entire life. And, you know, looking back on my childhood, I was, I definitely had a personality type and just, I think just with genetics involved, I was more prone to anxiety, most definitely looking back on my childhood. So these things made a strong impression, just struggling with the fear mm -hmm. of hell, rapture anxiety i remember an instance in my childhood i think it was around eight years old um i was at some kind of field trip with my 4-h club it was a thing we did with homeschoolers in our area and we were visiting someone's farm and i remember we were all in this person's front yard talking and i had to go to the bathroom so i went inside and i came out like a couple of minutes later and everyone was gone <gasps> in the front yard like there was no one standing around and i was just like bewildered and i was like where did everyone go like they're all gone and so i was convinced that yeah. jesus had come back and taken everyone and i started just screaming and screaming and screaming to the top of my lungs just running around hoping that maybe they were somewhere and i was screaming for my mom and eventually as i continued to run around i see in the distance and they they had all left me they all left me behind and they were walking down this trail in the woods and they had just forgotten me and jesus didn't come back um in that moment but that was just a terrifying instance i think of just how deep that indoctrination was from such a young age like the fear that it could happen at any moment and the, the thing in the IFB is they always taught you eternal security that once you're saved, you're always saved. But the catch with that was there was always doubt that was placed if you were actually saved. Mm. And conveniently, signs of being saved were happily going to church every week, wanting to read your Bible and pray every day, wanting to pray, happily oh. giving them your tithe every like all these things were signs of you being saved. Those are very I mean, and it's interesting because I'm like, okay, well, 
you know, I think they talk about the fruits of the spirit in the Bible or whatever, like love, joy, peace, whatever all the other things are. And like, but it, instead they were like, oh, these are all these rules and different things that we're going to place on you. And these are, if you happily follow these rules, these are signs of you being saved. So of course they had strict rules around music, TV, books, gender roles, sexuality, all these different things that I thought was absolute truth growing up and was like Christianity, but now gotten older, I'm like, those were man-made rules and things that like are nowhere to be found, I think in the Bible. Um, and yeah, so there was just that fear of really that control they had over you of like going against those rules. And you were taught that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and that if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict you about breaking these rules, then that was a sign you were not saved. It's a very convenient thing to have a list of rules that are now seemingly arbitrary that you're you're noticing. Um and then they can decide if you really are saved. Because I, I, you hear people now, like when they have like sort of deconstructed or they're going to a different church, people can, can conveniently say, well, they weren't really saved in the beginning. And it's just a very interesting thing that somebody in a predatory situation can do. Um, anyways. I just noticed. I mean, that's how they set it up. I, I love that as you're talking about this system that they've set up uh, for for children, like what we're going to refer to as like all children are prey. This this body that was created out of like a screw you to authority, a screw <laughs> you to uh, having a governing body, screw you oh, to accountability. Yeah. All they want to do is <laughs> yeah. make sure that you yeah. are obedient and obeying and have authority and have all this like, you know, rules and laws. And that's there is such a different world. Predators don't have any authority. They don't have any oversight. No, they not don't even want a, it. Obviously. No. But the prey is a totally different world. So yeah. so I find that every mm -hmm. single time there's this like total lack of accountability yeah. uh, creating this whole world of accountability for you because you're prey. So you got to do what we want. Anyways, um, so you're this young boy in this situation where um, you're being, um, I loved how you said, indoctrinated into a system of control. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, mic drop. Um, yeah. So, you know, when you're little and it sounds like you're experiencing this intense anxiety around the thing that matters most to you as a child, which is relationship. And like the message to you, it sounds like, is one of like, you don't listen to you. You don't trust you. Mm. If you don't listen to us and check all the boxes we want you to check, yeah. you're going to burn in hell and not be with us when we're raptured. So mm -hmm. this doesn't sound like the most promising foundation to send an eight-year-old into the teenage world, uh, so to speak. So can you, like, how, how, how does that look in those years? Mm, yeah, so, yeah, entering my teen years, they, I mean, woof, yeah, they were really really awful honestly um because i i had a sunday school teacher that i think it was sixth grade looking back i don't know why they let him have a sunday school class um but looking he was just took it just it was really awful basically he set up the teen years as 
the devil's going to come at you in every single turn. He's attacking you so much more now. Like he was basically telling all of these, you know, 11 year old boys, your teen years are going to be so awful and so terrible. You're going to have all these desires. He's going to come at you at mm-hmm. every single turn and you'll have to fight. So like you're put into this state of hypervigilance because really yeah. because it's a state of like spiritual war that they talk about. Cortisol and again, levels. Like you, Sorry, Sorry. We, we were talking about how when you're in stress, your cortisol levels peak. And if you're in this situation where they do kind of set you up for looking out for dangers everywhere you go, you better be armed and ready to fight. You're going to be in these situations where your cortisol levels and, you know, a PJ can talk to what it, it is like to have high, what it does to your body and your brain. When well, this is the idea, like, the predatory system keeps your cortisol levels high so that you never relax. So you never get a chance to actually think for yourself or mm. to calm your body mm. or to yeah. to be able to process what's going on for you because you're always terrified. It sounds like you're in a state of kind of terror, actually. Mm. Is that, is yes, that a fair yes, word? Very much. And, you know, in addition to all of that, in the IFB, you are just really taught that you're so worthless, that there's Mm. nothing good inside of you, that you're just Mm. rotten to the core. And so if you do anything good, that is only through God. Mm -hmm. So God takes all the credit for good. You take all the credit for like the bad Mm -hmm. that they see. Um, So so with that view, anyone who doesn't believe what they believe, then there's nothing good inside of them. So the outside world was painted as this evil, awful place. And I remember hearing terms like they're servants of Satan or they're children of Satan. So this extreme us versus them. And I've learned that um, really it's called phobia indoctrination. And it's where they keep you so scared of the outside world. Like it doesn't matter how bad it gets on the inside. The outside will always be worse. And that really keeps you from leaving. And you know, as I've continued to process things in therapy, I've realized there were some things I didn't, I had kind of forgotten that they used to control us to keep us in that. And one of these things was kind of like the fear of missing out on God's will. Mm -hmm. Like if you stay in this system, like God, he was, he had this special. And that was the thing that was confusing to me is you're so worthless, but you're also special. Um, (laughs) That was so confusing to me. Well, it is. It's, it's, it, it makes no sense really. Yeah. And I was like, cause like one week and again, it like, it resembles that as I've learned now, like a narcissistic abusive relationship, how in the beginning they hook you in with, Oh, God loves you. He wants to save mm-hmm. you. He has his plan for you. You're so special. If you just dedicate yourself, if you just do this, God will work this miraculous thing in your life and he can use you, but you know, you have to give up your will. And that was a big thing in the IFB is giving up your will. You weren't supposed to have dreams or ambitions for your life. That was bad. That Mm -hmm. was worldly. You were supposed to give that up and be open to what they believe that God wanted you to be. And in that environment, like your purpose is to spread their gospel message. I remember pressure growing up to dedicate your life to the full-time ministry. There's a lot of pressure because, you know, you have the answer, you have the truth, you know, why would you want to do anything else besides spread that? And I remember growing up, this really stood out to me. Um, the pastor said, you know, if we 
discover the cure for cancer, would we hide that? No, we wouldn't. We would spread it and let everyone know about it. So he saw the IFB as having like the the cure for cancer for the human soul or whatever. That's how they saw it. And that you wouldn't want to hide that from anyone. You would want to spread that everywhere. So they were just really believe that they had the truth and they had the answer. And that if they could get their religion, their approach to religion everywhere, they really believe that the world would be a much better place. Well, and it, they would they were willing to do whatever they could to do that. But I would I be the question I would have in that is the world would be a better place. But what would the world look like to them? Is it really what I would deem a better place no. or is what they would deem a better place? What does that it's mean? What they, and, and what like, would and can you answer that's that? That's the thing. Yeah. They t- they take this narcissistic view that they know what is best for everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone is blind to the truth. They're in a control by Satan, mm-hmm. but they're enlightened in a sense to that and they know what's best. And it's just, ooh, it's just, it's really honestly scary to think about. And it's just, even just seeing it in the US with like our new speaker of the house, mm. Mike Johnson is just really concerning. Mm-hmm. We talked about him last With week. the approach that he takes to his faith and some of the rhetoric that I've heard from him. Like whenever I hear someone say the Bible is clear, that's a red flag <laughs> yeah, to me. Yeah. You know, so we, much. we were just talking with um, a guest yesterday, Tia. Um, Levings, yeah. Tina Levings, Tia Levings. I don't know if you know her. I love her. Okay. Yes. So, yeah, she's <laughs> amazing. I've heard my podcast before. Shout out to Tia. Uh, yeah, yes, thank she's you. Amazing. Um, so, she called that exactly what you're talking about from from uh, this person. She called it a, a dog whistle. Uh, so, um, yeah. just, just, it's a call to those people who are sort of maybe just on the fringe on the underground yeah. and it's a dog whistle come on we've got the power now mm. like i was terrified yeah. i thought that was a brilliant anyway so she, she's you're you're right in in terms of um of this idea of like not only is it a red flag but it's a like a call to arms of sorts mm. which is pretty terrorizing if you are somebody who's like yourself who's understands what that could look like in reality mm. Mm. Yeah. And I I thought it was quite interesting what you're saying about like the idea of God's will for your life. And because I know from personal experience, it was always confusing that, you know, like you need to find out what God's will is for your life. But we'll tell you what the options are, you know, and so I hear you when you say that because the irony is you need to find out what God's, but we know what that is mm-hmm. and what it and, isn't. Yeah. And, and what I've learned even in my journey for the last 10 years is like, Hmm, it, whatever your relationship with God and all that, you have to step out towards the things that you enjoy because that mm-hmm. is in you. That is your, how you were created different than somebody else, right? If they're healthy and yeah. edifying, if they make the world a better place, how can that be a wrong, it, you step out in love, mm. you know? Um, it was just interesting to me, that idea of, we'll tell you what those things are, which is oh, very yeah. predatory-like, right? Predatorish? Predat- predatory. Predatory, mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> you were talking to us about... Um, this uh, teacher, the Sunday school teacher. Yeah. And you're saying like as a teenager, he really came from this really dark approach of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Very fear, like hyper vigilant yeah. place. Yeah. And he was 
And, you know, that really, it, it set me up for failure mm-hmm. in my teen years, most definitely. And, you know, I, you know, like I said, I was already someone who was prone to anxiety. So that made things so much worse. Yeah. And something I realized about the IFB is, and really what cults do is they tell you how to interpret your own emotions. Like you don't get to explore that yourself. They tell you what those things mean. So when you, for me, I had so much anxiety about doing the wrong thing Mm -hmm. or sinning or even just anxiety about my own thoughts and then having, having anxiety about having anxious thoughts. It's so awful. Like the level of just mind control, I think that happens with that. And, you know, I, you know, I think the IFB, they have so many harmful messages, but I think, you know, my own personality type and disposition made it worse. Definitely. Um, and I recently read um, I read Jill's memoir, but I also just read Ginger's mm-hmm. memoir, which is very different. Ginger, her memoir called Becoming Free Indeed is a more of a theological type thing. I was curious about it. She re- she experienced a lot of like scrupulosity or also like religious OCD and like anxiety. And I related to it, a lot to it. But yeah, I was just terrified. And I was always taught that, you know, sin always separates you from God. And that's why we have to pray for forgiveness. Even after we're supposedly saved, we have to like confess to like get that connection back. But I was always taught that, you know, we're always constantly sinning all the time. So for me, like I took that and I'm like, oh, well, I have to pray all the time. And I would like obsessively pray so much just to like, for me, like, it was like, I always had a dirty slate and I had to clean it off quickly or God was upset. So it was like, God was this person that was out to punish me at every turn. That's how I really saw God growing up. So in my teen years, as I took on, you know, the IFB's approach, the shame, fear based approach to it. And, you know, it's really it, it sets you up to be the person that tries to reach perfectionism. So, mm-hmm. you know, things are good when you feel like you're doing all the things and having all the right thoughts, but there's the unbearable shame that comes when you don't meet those standards. And, you know, all the harmful messages that I was receiving growing up, in addition to all of that, like you're so like, they're just, you're being broken down essentially as a person, your identity is being taken away from you and you're being given a new identity in that environment. And it's just, it's like, I couldn't get a break from it because I was homeschooled. I was in this church and just everyone I was around was at least like had some kind of Christian ideology. And like, you know, I, I don't think I could have questioned it even at a young age. Cause you know, you're taught is the truth is really all you know. And it wouldn't take me till later in my teen years to really question it when my sexuality didn't match what they taught. I think as as I've told my story, people have like, oh, people have said, oh, your sexuality saved you. Like that made you Mm. really question. Um, There definitely were moments in my childhood that I can look back where I felt like there was that critical thinking coming up, but, you know, repressing that at times because it went against teachings. And one of the things I think that I can look back and see that I started question, but like struggled to, was I think the devotion that people had to the leader of our group, it really just bothered me how devoted people were to him. 
and adored him, especially my parents. I didn't, it didn't click with me, like what everyone saw in him for some reason. And I remember when I asked my parents, I'm like, why, why do you, why does everyone look up to him so much? And it just, it just made me uncomfortable. I wasn't sure how to label it then, but when they would start, start talking about him, they would start crying, no. talking about how amazing he is. Is this Jack Hiles so after, they're talking about? After, yeah, after yeah. that, I felt so much shame for not feeling the same way that everyone mm. else did. And whenever I would talk to people, like they would just like, whenever his name would come up, like they would just go just absolutely crazy about him. And I just didn't feel the same way. And I think a really big turning point was in my teen years. So our our church would always do this yearly, like, I don't know, banquet slash potluck. And it was basically like a service that was just dedicated to the history of the church. And they would hand out these pamphlets where it would have like the history of all the entire church and just basically the empire that this leader built oh. basically and just saying the, the very like grandiose of like oh look at all that we've done and of course it would say it was god but there's still a lot of i feel like bragging in that environment and i remember at one of these things you know it would always be centered around the leader and all of his work and i remember a member going to the pulpit to pray and i remember the member praying they were like dear god help us to be more like our pastor brother bobby Hmm. And in that moment, like, I just looked up and I was, I looked at everyone around me because that, because I was like, wait, I'm like, that doesn't align with Christian teachings. No, we're taught to be more like Christ, not mm-hmm. pray to be more like our pastor. So that really stood out to me. And I looked around and like, no one was looking up. Just about everyone was shaking their heads as this person was praying. And I just, and I kept that to myself. And it just like, it really just, I, I could just feel the chills throughout all my body. Like when that happened, I think just, I think looking back, seeing that cult moment of the devotion that people had to our leader, but you know, I couldn't say anything because people were so devoted to him and my parents would do anything that he said. And, you know, I remember growing up the rules that he would put in place. So one of the rules that he had was called no mixed bathing, Mixed bathing was when prepubescent children swam in a swimming pool together. That was a sin. That was one of the rules he had. So I remember I was involved in a 4-H club and homeschool group. And I really like, I couldn't really make any friends with that. I mean, I was already a pretty like socially awkward homeschooler. But in addition, like I was not up to date on any my culture things because I wasn't allowed to listen to any kind of secular music. I wasn't allowed to go to any movie theaters. I wasn't allowed to keep up with anything pop culture. Um, And, you know, I wasn't allowed to dance. So our homeschool group would have a prom. So I never got to go to that. So all these people be doing all these different things. And, you know, they would go swimming in the summer at times as a group. And like, as a kid, I would get, I got excited for that. And I asked my mom about it and she was like, no, she's like, brother Bobby says no mixed bathing. That's a sin. And, and when kids would go to the movie theater, I would ask, and she was like, no, brother Bobby says we can't do that. And, you know, a thing in the IFB is like, they're all about testimony, mm. um, all about the outward appearance. Like how, what would other people think if we did this thing? 
And so that was the fear around movie theaters was, oh, what if someone saw you? They don't know what movie you're watching. What would they think? <laughs> mm-hmm. So there is all this focus on this outward appearance of what they called testimony. So yeah, throughout all of my teen years, just focus, just struggling with perfectionism, worrying about other people think, and then grappling with my own sexuality. And in my teen years, I struggled with uh, like just so much with depression not knowing that I was dealing with the trauma of my upbringing, Mm -hmm. a lot of unmet needs, a lot of trauma just from all these teachings and just trauma from my family in general for the way they raised me and my brothers. And like it it brought me to a very dark place. And in that environment, you are taught that all mental health issues are sin or it's a spiritual issue. So you're taught that if you're depressed, like you're not believing, you're not trusting enough. Oh, you don't have hope in Christ enough. So if you just read your Bible, pray, get that connection back to Jesus, all your mental health issues will be fixed. Like they had the answer to literally everything. So if you just align with their teachings, everything in life would be fine. And it kind of, they would never say that it was prosperity gospel, but there are prosperity gospel elements to it. You know, I think the obey, like obedience, like you'll be blessed You'll be fine if you obey. Uh, another thing growing up, looking back is all we were all required or really expected to give 10% of our income or we were, we were told that God would not bless us. Mm-hmm. So I remember from a young age giving like 5% of my little allowance, I'm sorry, 10% of my allowance that I got growing up. And then, you know, my parents would always give 10% of their income because we were taught that God will not bless you if you do not give us at least 10% of your income. And so I'm struggling just with all these different things, grappling with my sexuality, worrying about my own safety um, in that environment. Can I ask you, when you started questioning your sexuality, did you know at a young age or because even in this environment, you wouldn't know what that is either. Like I would assume Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking for you, but yeah. So in that environment, like I had no, I was never given the talk when it was about sex, it was always like, you know, heteronormative and it was always save it for marriage. So a lot of purity culture elements in there. Looking back, I can see um, instances of my sexuality coming up, but I didn't realize it then. I think it wasn't until like, I can see like, okay, 13, 14, I can see that coming up of like, just feeling like, oh, I don't, this isn't matching what they're teaching, but not knowing what to label that Mm. at all. Mm not really knowing where I fit in and, and I didn't fit into their binary black and white system. So it was something that I just kind of like pushed down and would repress. And I know, I knew I didn't fit what they taught about sex, but I was like, I don't, I don't know how to deal with this at all. So it was something that I put down and it wasn't until like, I think 16 years old that when that became, that drive became so much stronger, I think, and I think at that point, it was around 16 or 17, I think that's when, because at that point, up until that point, I had no like internet access. That was all, like I couldn't search a browser or anything like that. So I think it was when, around 16 or 17 years old when I finally was able through my, through me, honestly, being sneaky, um, <laughs> was able <laughs> to get past those barriers and just start just researching stuff like just and that's the great thing too when 
algorithms aren't always great. And my <laughs> algorithm would know what to recommend to me. <laughs> <at times. laughs> um, and I think, yeah, that was a hard realization to come across that information online of learning about sexuality. And it was like, I was like, oh, you know, I've, and that's the thing, these Christians are so scared of people having access to information. And they think that's indoctrination, which is so funny to me, having access to information. But for me, it's like, oh, I can actually finally label what I've been experiencing. I can, you know, this is not a binary thing that they're talking about. These strict boxes they put this in. And, you know, and it was a relief to know, but it was also devastating. Mm. It was really devastating and sent me into a deep, deep state of just depression because I was the evil one that they were talking about. I was the th like I in the environment, like they had their different levels of, I think they didn't explicitly say it, but like from what it communicated, there were different levels of what of sin that God hated. So you were you were more of an gay people were more of an abomination to mm -hmm. God than someone who's doing maybe something else or stealing or I don't know, but, and they would always lump it with pedophilia, with like addiction and stuff mm. like that. So it was just you again, like, I feel like that deeper feeling of worthlessness that was put on me. So, so you're 16, 17 years old. And so from what I'm sort of gathering from your description of your own experiences with anxiety, David Burns, I don't know if you know, um, he's a, uh, like a cognitive behavioral therapist of of the nth degree. Um, but he talks about anxiety as being a disease of the nice. Uh, and so generally speaking, he says, if you've got high anxiety, it's usually the root of it is usually a, a, a kindness, a niceness, mm -hmm. um, a deep, deep sense of relationship. And so the anxiety comes up uh, because you want to be connected, you want to be loved, you want to be valued. And so through your story, I'm hearing there's all these spaces and times where this depth, what's most beautiful about you, this, this depth you have of loving people, this depth you have of making relationships so powerful in your life. Um, and yet the message to you is always, you're, you're nothing you're not enough. You got to do more. And now you're 16, 17 years old and you find out that this thing that you are, like this part of you is now the thing that they don't like more than anything mm. else. Like, I'm just yeah. wondering, like in my mind, I'm like, how did, how do you survive? If that is your nature, how do you survive that moment? Like what, what holds you in there? Mm. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that is a, a good question. And it's been interesting because I've noticed as I talk about my mental health, my teen years, I've kind of, as I've done interviews, I share less and less information <laughs> at times. Um, but what really my, my mind adapted in a very different kind of way. And when I, when I, when I try to describe this, this is what I usually say, like, I hated myself so much that I couldn't stand the thought of being me. Mm -hmm. So I had to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. So what happened was my mind convinced me that I was a different person. That's how I got through that depression. I had a different, I don't, I've talked about it in 
therapy and my therapist has told me it was, you know, it was my mind's an extreme way my mind adapted to that trauma and to stay alive was okay. This extreme self-hatred, I couldn't bear the thought of living. Okay. My mind had to convince me that I was somebody else. I was a completely different person. There would be times growing up where I would get, or, you know, look in the mirror and I would be surprised at what I look like. Cause I thought I was somebody else. Like mm-hmm. that's how deep it was. And that's, I think that trauma response of my mind, I think is what kept me alive as I eventually started to learn to accept my sexuality. Well, it's like a disassociation, yeah. which yeah, a lot of trauma people mm-hmm. who have been traumatized or victimized or abused. There's a disassociation, which it sounds like this was what it was for you and it's Mm -hmm. there's a reason why we do that it's to protect ourselves it's you know it's not bad because our body does it it's just i think living in that state i'm sure pj has an opinion about this but i would think that living in that state is not good for us but it's a survival it's survival but this is where like your whole world when you're wired to love and be loved and some people have that deeper and it sounds andrew like you've got that pretty deep um it's it's literally the most beautiful thing in the world and yet when somebody when the message to you is predatory you're not enough you can't do it you've got to be my way or nothing you know if you're if you're wired this way then then your body can't cope because you just need you're so desperate to love and be loved, your body cannot cope with with that level and depth of rejection. And so you've got, like, it sounds like, that's why I was curious, like, your body, your brain must have done something to let you cope in that moment yeah. because everything that you valued in your heart of hearts would have been threatened. And so it sounds like this yeah. is what you used to kind of make it through. But then at what point, because this is heavy lifting, like you're talking about, you're talking about this thing now threatens everything. It's, you know, it's been teetering. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you've been trying to check all the boxes your whole life and having these flashes of independent thought. Um, but now this thing threatens to topple this over. Um, and so you, I hear you d- sort of disconnect from self. You dissociate, try to be another person. When does the integration start happening or when does it implode? Like, take us to that moment. If I could answer this question quickly. Yeah. And then if that, if you don't mind. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think with the integrating, I think honestly, that is something I'm still working on and it's still been a slow process, I think. Um, and, and that's what I've been learning in therapy that like, it's not black and white. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going to suddenly snap back to my normal self and integration. I've definitely integrated parts. Um, disassociation is my number one struggle as I've been healing. Um, I, it is crazy to me because like, as I've recently gotten a cat, a cat Mm. has made me realize how much I disassociate because when I'm petting that cat, I'm in that present moment and I'm feeling all the sensations and everything and enjoying that. And like, you know, listening to my cat purr, but like before that, it was like my mind was like floating, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I was just like out of body. Um, but yeah, so when it came to this, so after my mind adapted to me or to that in that way in the teen years, I just went around for the longest time thinking I was someone else. And I think what I had to do, I think, was try to like convince myself that God didn't hate me. 
for feeling this, I think. Because mm-hmm. in that environment, I'm like, okay, I have, I cannot be this. If I'm this, God will hate me or dislike me or whatever until I change this. So I think um, trying to, I mean, really for the longest time, I just tried to pray the gay away, the typical, mm-hmm. just yeah. you were taught that God could deliver you mm-hmm. from that. That was their wording or wording of like, God would heal you. So I think for me, that disassociating just, and I, I think I would float between my real self and this identity my mind created. It would like go back and forth between things, I think. And it continued, I think, to stay with me, not as intense, but still during my college years. Um, and then, yeah, I feel like, yeah, that is something we can talk about more um, in the second part. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing that with us, because Mm -hmm. I think that you are not alone in in being in one of these sort of high control environments um, with with course of controlling predatory systems and people. Um, There's and it's so hard for people, especially when you're sort of this kind of kind, Mm -hmm. um, loving nature to find your way to have a voice. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, uh, I'm yeah. so kind of excited to hear your second yeah. part of your story yeah. for how, where you are, how did you get where you are? Because yeah. I don't think that many people would really grasp the heavy lifting that you must have had to do to get there. So I, I can't wait yeah. for that. So would you join us for a part two? Yes, I'd be okay. happy to. Awesome. Yeah, that's okay. amazing. Okay, Thank you. Be- before we go, we talked about um, what's the Bible verse that says that if you obey that you'll live long? Proverbs 19.23. Obey the Lord and you will live a long life content, content and safe from harm. That's um, obey the Lord, though. Yeah. That is. That <laughs> Not is, obey your okay, parents. Okay, we're going to get on to a theological <laughs> discussion here, people. Okay, Andrew, we're going to let you go for now. Thank you. I hope you come back with us soon. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being here with us today. Andrew, tell us where people can find you. Oh, yes. So I am very active on Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, threads. Just search Andrew Pledger. And I do a lot of... Um, education online around religious trauma fundamentalism and cults and i have a Substack that i've recently started just sharing more like personal things through that um so i highly recommend people checking that out i've been trying to learn to try to be more vulnerable online about certain things so i hope people can find some hope and comfort from my Substack. that's amazing thank you thank Thank you. you of course